impactful stories on and off the field, told by the biggest names in the game. This is the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Welcome to another edition of the Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to a legend from the world of track and field, Charlie Moore, who won the 400-meter hurdles at the Olympic Games in Helsinki, Finland, 68 years ago. But first, it was 36 years ago that an electrifying New York Mets rookie from Tampa sent a massive jolt through the game. That player was Doc Gooden. With 276 strikeouts, young Dr. K established the record for first-year players. Last year, the MLB record book was torn up again by another Mets rookie from Tampa, Pete Alonso, the polar bear. He has a gift for slugging and rare drive. But as Buster only reports in this E60 profile, for Alonso, baseball is more than a game. It has also been his salvation. Any parallels, you think, baseball and fishing? Absolutely. It takes patience, preparation, and also you don't share scouting reports. Give me a scouting report on yourself as someone who fishes. Um, every once in a while, uh, I tend to get too excited. And that can lead to not hooking the bait the right way and it flying off. My pros, I stick with it, even though if it's not like you're, we're not catching fish. Persistent, that's, that's the word. Persistent. That is definitely the word to describe 25-year-old New York Mets first baseman Pete Alonso. has struck again. Alonso has constructed his own space in baseball's history books and endeared himself to peers along the way. I call him the polar bear. His food is hitting homers. Forget that. That's way out of here. But Pete Alonso's rise to the majors wasn't exactly easy. He faced bullying from kids throughout his childhood from the early years until even the most recent years. I took it personal. Like, if you don't believe me, watch this, and then you're going to eat your words. The Mets finally get the big hit, and of course, it's the polar bear to do it. Born December 7, 1994, Pete Alonso grew up in an upper-class neighborhood in Tampa, Florida. Peter just started throwing up the ball and hitting it on his own. I really, really, really enjoyed my upbringing. I mean, my mom and my dad were extremely supportive, um, played a lot of baseball, was always outside. I'm lucky because Tampa's really conducive for that. This is Peter before he's getting ready for his first baseball game. Hey, Peter. Here he is. Look, he's the only one at the field. We practiced today while everybody went home because he loves it. I was old enough to understand what Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Mike Piazza were doing, like Ken Griffey Jr. For me, it's like, I want to be like those guys. Pete, that's nice. Woo! What was that? It's like, I don't want to have any other job. I don't want to work in an office. I only want to play baseball. There was no question Pete was focused, but to a lot of his peers, he stood out. He was the biggest kid in the room, and he was the funniest, uh, the kindest, and he was always goofy. 
but he was made fun of throughout his childhood for his size. I was bigger. I was, I got, I was picked on for it, but I mean, that kind of stuff really stuck with me and it hurt on the inside. I'd internalized a lot of things. I didn't really fight back. I was punched or kicked or something like that before, but it didn't hurt like physically, but it hurt like mentally. I still remember who exactly did it. And I still remember who was, was, I still remember who, and I remember that. Baseball was my safe place. Someone can make fun of me in the classroom or like, or in PE or, or whatever, but no one would make fun of me in between the lines. Here we go, that's gone. That was my outlet. That's when I got my payback. Cause then like, yeah, you're making fun of me. Like I'll, I'll just hit a homer off you. Suck on that. Despite his personal struggles off the field, Alonso started turning heads on it. In 2011, the 16-year-old started playing for Plant High School. He hadn't even met the head baseball coach at Plant High School yet. And kind of walked into his office one day and said, I'm Pete Alonso. Pete had to prove himself. There wasn't a time where Pete wasn't working while everybody else was out partying. He played third base in high school, but a lot of people were unsure. He didn't make the game look very pretty. So athleticism, all that, needed some work, um, skill set, but the bat was special. His senior year of high school, he just basically broke out, had a phenomenal season. As a senior, Pete hit 387 with seven home runs. He had his sights set on the Major League Baseball draft, but scouts projected he would not go in the first few rounds. Hi, my name is Pete Alonzo. I'm 6'2", and I'm 210 pounds. I play third and first base. In fact, Alonso wasn't drafted out of high school, and many scouts doubted his abilities. But some college programs did recruit him. Pete ultimately decided to stay closer to home. He signed his letter of intent to go to the University of Florida. A majority of the scouts said, you know, Pete's not good enough to go to Florida. There's no way he's going to survive there. I can't believe they commit him there. When it came down to it, I went to one of the most elite college programs and balled out. Peter Alonzo sends a moonshot to deep left. This ball is crushed high and deep to left field. Alonzo does it again. Base hit, ball game. Florida wins it in 10. I was a freshman All-American. I was a... SEC All-Tournament team, I'm an SEC champion, I'm a two-time College World Series participant, I'm an All-American, and then at one point I had the three longest home runs in College World Series history, so those scouts are idiots. Alonso converted exclusively to first base in college and was on a mission to prove his doubters wrong, one of whom was a teacher in a seminar. The first paper was what you deem as a successful and what successful life and what your dreams are to be. I said, I want to be a big league baseball player. When he got the paperback graded, the teacher added a note depicted here in a recreation for a major league baseball commercial. It's like too unrealistic written on it. So it's a C. I kind of just shook my head. I'm like, who does this guy think he is? <laughs> like he, he, this guy, I'm like, this guy doesn't know. Shit. And to pro scouts. He was a dime a dozen, right-handed hitting first baseman with below-average defense. 
I'm about substance. I'm about producing the numbers. And if you can't see those intangibles, then that's your fault. In 2016, Alonso was a junior. And Florida was on its way to its second straight College World Series appearance. But when he started dating a girl from out of state, he had to confront the lifelong problem that continued to haunt him. Bullying. My roommates, when I was in college, didn't agree with me being in this relationship. We decided to do long distance. And they, they didn't get that because, I mean, with distance, you have to over-communicate. My time wasn't focused on, like, going out, being, being a dumbass or anything like that. And I was being attacked for that. So it kind of got bad to where they were, like, just totally just tearing into me about it. The roommates were also teammates. And Alonso says the bullying about his relationship became relentless. I had enough. The guy that was doing it went like this, grabbed, just grabbed him. And I'm like, look, you don't ever do that. And then he said, meet me at the clubhouse. And he didn't show up. That's the best part about it. It was really unfortunate because my head coach didn't have my back either. I found out that my, my roommates kind of went behind my back and told him that I needed to break up with her, and then he used that against me in the game. He's like, oh, you're just focused on her. You're not focused about the team. You don't care. And I told him to go f*** himself in the dugout. And you don't ever say that to a college coach, but I did. I'm following my moral compass, and I'm so proud of what I did. Now she's my fiance, so it's worked out fantastically. Good for Pete for standing up for himself after all these years and all the constant belittlings and kids and players and coaches poking fun and criticizing, and it actually drives him every day. That drive led to June 9th, 2016, draft day. With the 64th selection of the 2016 Major League Draft, New York Mets select Pete Alonzo, first baseman for the University of Florida. That would, right there was the, the start of, of dreams becoming into reality. It wasn't just snap of the fingers. It was long, hard work in order to get in that position. You're listening to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio. More coming up next. Back to the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. All guests on the Sporting Life appear via the Shell Pennzoil performance line. Welcome back to the Sporting Life. And in our last segment, we heard a portion of the piece that Buster only reported on Pete Alonso for E60 going up through the time he was drafted by the New York Mets. For more on that story and other things going on now in the world of baseball, we are joined by the one and only Buster Only. Buster, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, I always love talking with you. I found the Pete Alonzo profile fascinating. And part of it was the fact that it was so unexpected to hear him talking about these things that he had been through, which I was unaware of. And I had not previously, and I think many were unaware of. Um, what was it like for you sitting in the chair across from him hearing him talk, this big baseball star, 
about having been bullied, not just as a little kid, but up through and including his experience at the University of Florida. Yeah, it was a surprise. Um, I read an interview before I sat down for that uh, interview with him in person. I read uh, a story about how he'd gone back to his old middle school and he talked to the kids about, hey, don't worry about being different. Uh, Being weird is okay." And, And when I saw that, I felt like, okay, there's something there. And I didn't know what it was. But I started asking the questions, and as I've said before, it's like, it was like putting your finger into the ground and having an oil gusher. And he just came out with all these hurt feelings and experiences and remembering every person and every word. And really, at this point in his life, having those people as massive chips on his shoulder that stay with him to this day. And, of course, we think of, and this is an unfair generalization, as most generalizations are. We think of the big star athlete, a guy like Pete Alonso. He must have been the most popular kid in school. He must have had incredible self-confidence. It's almost impossible to imagine um, a star like that having been bullied. Have you ever encountered a story like this before uh, with an athlete? Not to that degree. And yeah, Pete Alonso now is one of the strongest players in baseball. You know, 6'3", 245 pounds. But as I got to know him through this, it made more sense to me because, Jeremy, he's so earnest. Mm. Like, every emotion that he feels is out there. So you could imagine, you know, when he was eight, nine years old and other kids were calling him fat, that they probably saw the reaction in his face. And you know this from being a kid. That, that fed that. And I'm sure mm-hmm. at, you know, University of Florida, some of his teammates probably felt like Pete would never fight back, which is why, you know, the story he told about grabbing his teammate off the scooter And basically standing up to him for the first time, he felt like that was so empowering for him to finally stand up for himself. We're speaking with Buster Olney about his E60 profile of the 2019 National League Rookie of the Year, Pete Alonzo. When you think about what he did last year, obviously unprecedented, but against the backdrop of a season in which home runs were flying out of the parks in a way they had never done so before. What, what fair conclusions can we draw about, uh, about Alonzo based on what he did in 2019? That he's a rising star. Look, there's never been any question about him in terms of adding, having hitter tools. I, I think he surprised some people with his ability to make adjustments from a bat to a bat, but no one ever doubted his power. You get stories about that all the way back to his childhood. But his defense has come so far. And so I think what he proved not only you know, to baseball fans, but also to the Mets, who weren't really uh, planning on having him be a big part of what they did in 2019, that he's someone who's going to be a star for a long time. We're sitting here speaking on Thursday afternoon, um, August 20th. And about 10 days ago, I'm looking at the game logs here, he was hitting... 197. I'm sorry, nine days ago, he was hitting 197 with uh, one home run. And now he's hitting 247 and he has five home runs, including a two home run game a couple of days ago. Uh, What's going on with Alonzo this season? Well, I think he is very much like a player I covered with the Yankees, Paul O'Neill, in that He's someone, if you remember remember. Paul O'Neill, he was the guy when he would make an out, he would go back and he would destroy the Gatorade coolers. And famously, one time, you know, in a season in which he probably hit 330, he runs past first base after making a ground out, and he yells out to the first base coach, I'll never get another hit. (laughs) 
Well, that's kind of Pete. Pete's, I think, can drive himself crazy mm. a little bit. And he's got to find ways to get out of his own head. And I think gradually we're starting to see that. He's been more patient at the plate. I bet you by the time we get to the end of the 60 games, he's going to have numbers that are, are representative to some degree of what he did last year. And interestingly, even though he's batting 247, his on-base percentage at 375 is higher than it was last season when he hit those 53 home runs. Uh, maybe he's not seeing quite as many good pitches, which would be um, a natural thing to occur, I guess, this year. Uh, in terms of the ceiling for this guy, what do you see? I think he's going to be a perennial all-star. Uh, you mentioned his high on-base percentage. The fact that he's willing to take walks puts him ahead of a lot of uh, young players. It's almost a cliche, you know, the big, strong guy who hits a lot of home runs and strikes out a lot. The question is, will they have the patience to give themselves a chance? And the fact that Pete's able to do that, I think, means that he's going to be around New York for a long time. And look, the timing for his ascent is perfect because the Mets are going to have new ownership. Old ownership didn't really spend. You can bet that the new owner coming in, whether it's Steve Cohn or Alex Rodriguez group, that group is going to pay Pete Alonso. And there's no question from talking with his teammates, Todd Frazier, Robinson Cano, they feel like that Pete, in so many respects, is the perfect personality to play in New York. You know, some guys aren't suited to it, but he's so generous with his time and he's so open and he so much wants to do good things that we saw last year Mets fans really respond well to him. Buster, of course, this week, uh, one of these old school, new school baseball arguments about Fernando Tatis swinging on a 3-0 pitch with his team up. It made me think of something. I, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but basically Whitey Herzog used to say when he would be criticized for letting his guys uh, run when they had a big lead, I'll tell my guys to stop stealing bases when they tell their guys to stop sitting, hitting home runs. And uh, again, it falls into this uh, gray area of baseball, so-called unwritten rules. What, what are your thoughts about what happened? Jeremy, I thought this week was kind of a turning point in the conversation. First off, it was so cool that maybe the first response on social media to the criticism that Tatis Jr. was getting was from Johnny mm. Bench, the greatest catcher of all time, who's as old school as anybody. And he walked through the, you know, okay, here's the sequence. You take a strike on 3-0 and because that's what the old school says you have to do. And then the pitcher tries to make a pitcher's pitch. And then he hit a ground right. ball double play. He's like, just swing the bat. And Aaron Boone... The manager of the Yankees, who comes from you know a family, his grandfather played the big leagues, his father played in the big leagues, and he said, you know, I believe in some of that. And then he paused and said, but when you really think about it, it is kind of silly. And he's exactly right. It was borne out by this situation. Uh, look, it's not eighth-grade basketball where, you know, one team after getting a 100-point lead should take the press off, the full-court press. It's professional right. baseball. <laughs> if somebody's offended – Make a better pitch. Right. And I mean, maybe I'm missing some of the nuances here, but that that whole unwritten rule, the three note thing, you know, it's like, OK, you know, these days you have option. You don't even have to throw him four balls. Just put him on first if you don't want to give him a pitch to hit. Right. Like, like I, I, I don't. This one, I mean, some of it I, I get the old school uh, mentality, but this one's kind of a mystery to me. And I was looking at a piece that our colleague Tim Kirchin wrote six years ago about these unwritten rules. And he quotes Tory Hunter. And he, he presents him with that exact scenario, you know, uh, with the th swinging at the 3-0. And he said, 
And he says, Tori Hunter, the question is, you know, what happens to the guy who does what Tatis did this week? He says he gets killed the next day. I mean, this is this is uh, kind of a written in stone thing in baseball and has been for a long time. A hundred percent. And look, Keith Hernandez, is a longtime uh, player and now a great Mets broadcaster. You know, he gave voice to that old school mentality. He said, well, you know, what's going to happen is Tatis is going to get the guy behind him thrown at, which is what happened. Manny Machado came up behind him and had a pitch thrown behind his head. And, you know, Keith said it as if, well, that's the way it's always been. Why? (laughs) Why are we questioning Tatis Jr. swinging at a 3-0 pitch as opposed to the pitcher who's throwing at the batter? Why is that more okay than actually trying to compete? And here's the other backdrop of this, too, Jeremy. You know, this is at a time when there's less action in baseball than in any point in baseball history because of all the walks and strikeouts. And here you have a situation where the product needs action. And you know what? Tatis Jr. provided a lot of great action. He's an exciting young player. Why not? Again, it's professional baseball. Compete to the last pitch. Well, uh, it has been an interesting week in baseball. And baseball is lucky to have Tatis and Alonzo. We're lucky to have Buster Olney joining us. Thank you so much, sir. Always great talking. Likewise, Jeremy. You're listening to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio. More coming up next. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Brought to you by Shell V Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. 68 years ago in the summer of 1952 in Helsinki, Finland, Charles Moore was one of the outstanding figures at those Olympic Games. He won the gold medal in the 400-meter hurdles, and he won a silver representing the United States in the 4x400-meter relay. At the end of the year, he finished second in the voting for the Sullivan Award, which is presented to America's top amateur athlete. He would go on to a distinguished career in business, in corporate philanthropy, as a college athletics administrator, and he is also an old friend of the Shaft family, which is uh, the least impressive by far of his accomplishments. It's a pleasure to welcome to the sporting life Gold medalist, Olympic Hall of Famer, Charlie Moore. Charlie, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for for making the call, and and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Charlie, when you think back to the summer of 1952, and 48, you did not compete in 48. You you were still a teenager then, but that was the first post-World War II games, and they were set against the backdrop of, of Great Britain still recovering from World War II. 52, you could say, is the first uh, modern, modern Olympics with the Soviet Union showing up to compete for the first time since it came into existence. What are the things that you think of um, when when you think back to that summer, Charlie? Well, uh, in the first place, uh, my dad had uh, represented the United States in the uh, 1924 games. So, uh, he, he was always the legendary 1924 games, which of course are the subject of the Oscar winning film exactly. chariots of fire. He, he, your dad was, was an alternate on the track team, I believe, right? He was, uh, but he was also my coach and my supporter and my, and my pusher of all <laughs> kinds. He was a nervous, uh, 
influenced by life, and he was there. So uh, I, I was obviously pleased to have my family there, uh, but I was focused on one thing and one thing only, winning that 400-meter hurdles. Uh, you're, you just mentioned that the Russians were coming. That is true. They came uh, for the first time since 1910, and... The caveat for their willingness to come was that they had to have their own village, which, of course, totally contrary to to the spirit of of the Olympic movement. And so the Russians and the Iron Curtain satellites had one village, and the rest of us, the free world, so to speak, had the other village. But uh, I had uh, pioneered taking 13 steps between hurdles as opposed to 15. 13 is now the standard, but... then it was uh, the standard of 15. And the Russians came to our village to, to see this crazy American who had, was taking these few steps. And uh, they, they came, with the athletes and the coaches, and they came with a broom. And I happened to be hurtling that day. I didn't hurl every day. I was hurtling in our training camp. And I, they, I went through, and suddenly they got their broom. And because we were not talking about cinder tracks, not fancy tracks. And uh, they brushed the Brush the sinners so they could really count. Oh my God, he really takes 13 steps. So <laughs> that, that was important uh, to me. Uh, a, to, those were competing against the Russians. What I didn't know is their number one 400 meter hurdler never lost a race until the finals um, of the Olympics in 1952. So here we had two. Yuri Lituev, is that how you his, say his name? Yuri Lituev. And uh, so here we had, in the final, I didn't realize this, so it was not foremost in my mind, that we had two undefeated people, America against Russia, and that sort of thing. But, you know, the, for me, the, the Olympics are not a nationalistic thing. I've just described some nationalistic approaches to it. But it's really uh, the best in the world. Each man standing on his own that given day. It's not what you did yesterday or what you're going to do tomorrow. It's what you do today. And uh, that makes it very powerful. And uh, um, and I, I I was driven by that, and the purpose I had to winning that race. Mm. We're speaking with Charlie Moore, the 1952 Olympic gold medalist in the 400-meter hurdles. He also won silver in the 4x400-meter relay. The United States team finished second to that great Jamaican relay team. Um, what do you remember about the the relay competition? You guys shattered the world record, uh, but you still finished second. Well, yes, that, that's true. Uh, I handed off the baton uh, to Mal Whitfield, who already won the 800 meters in the Olympics that year. Uh, at the same time... You were running Herman, the third leg. Yes, right. sir. And, and the, um, at the same time that um, Herb McKinley handed it off to George Roden. Both those men held the, the world record for the 400 meter dash, and so and they ran literally around the track together. And I suppose we lost by maybe four inches or so. We definitely mm-hmm. lost. Uh, but the Russian, I'm sorry, the German team was just coming into the straightaway, and they too broke the existing Olympic record. So that's how far, how much we broke it by some four seconds. It was a great race, and Herb McKinley ran something like 44 and some small change. Nobody ever, ever, ever had run that mm. fast before, so he ran a spectacular leg. I had the great pleasure of meeting Herb. He went on to be professional runner and then be the 
the uh, sports director of all Jamaica and so on, I had the fun of visiting him in his home just before he died in uh, in Kingston. That was a very special uh, opportunity for me. Mm. Okay, we're speaking with Charlie Moore. I, I think, Charlie, um, I, I was friendly with Harrison Dillard, who won the 110-meter hurdles in 52, and of course had won the 100-meter dash four years earlier in London in a big upset. Um Four-time Olympic gold medalist Harrison Dillard, who died last fall at the age of 96. I, I visited Harrison once at his home in Cleveland. I, I had this impression, maybe I'm wrong, was his wife related to one of the Jamaican uh, champions from from that era? Frankly, I don't know, Jeremy, but okay. uh, I do know that there was no finer person than Harrison Dillard. Oh, Keen, competitive, but very friendly and, and approachable. Uh, he, he was a... He was a powerful uh, athlete for our, for our team. Remarkable, remarkable. And, and, and Charlie, uh, it's a different world now. You can make millions as a professional track star now. And, and that's been the case for a couple of decades. And you can continue to compete in the major global competitions, the world championships and the Olympics and national championships. Of course, that was not the case when you were in your heyday. You're 22 years old in Helsinki, about to turn 23, but 22 years old when you win that gold medal and you win that silver medal. And now um, you're faced with the choice uh, of joining um, kind of a fledgling professional circuit in which there wasn't a ton of money to be made or just moving on from your career as an athlete. How did you make the choice? Well, uh, frankly, that was pretty easy. my family, my father, grandfather had a steel forging business, and I always intended to go there. However, I, we had a five-year engineering program at the time at Cornell. Uh, in my final year, and jobs were very difficult. Um, I got two wonderful offers, one from DuPont and one from Bethlehem Steel. And I was mm. very serious about both of them. And uh, my father talked to me again and said, no, Charlie, we need you to run the family business. So that was one thing. Number two, I had done what I set out to do. I had the purpose of winning the 400-meter hurdles, and I did that. I was very happy to win a silver medal as well in the relay. But I had other things to do. Um, and so I went without question. The funny thing happened, though, Jeremy, um, every about three months I've done. I've quit. I set up two world records in London in the 440-yard hurdles after the Olympics, and that, that's it. I've done. So, about two months later, my whole body—I was in perfect condition. My whole body started itching. So I went into the local hmm. track there in Westchester, the State Teachers College, now a university, and started running. Well, my God, of course, I was just on top of myself, and I timed myself, and I, I was ready to go. I said, well, I've got to run one more indoor season. Now, I've run all the indoor seasons. I had won the IC4A and, and the NCAA and the uh, all the things, AAU and so on. So I said, well, i got to do one more uh, season. And, you know, as I drove back from that workout, I said, Charlie, that makes no sense. You you can do nothing but lose. You, you've won all those races already, not all the time. <laughs> Uh, no those games and so on. And that's when I when I got home that day. I took those shoes and put them away uh, f- forever. Uh, the, 
That was 68 years ago. We're speaking with Charlie Moore, the U.S. track and field legend who this week has celebrated his 91st birthday. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Charlie Moore after the break. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and more at Progressive.com. You're listening to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio. More coming up next. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. Again, we're speaking to one of the great figures from Olympic history, the 1952 gold medalist in the 400-meter hurdles, an American track and field Hall of Famer. He also won silver at the 1952 Helsinki Olympics in the 4x400-meter relay. Charlie Moore. Charlie, um... It's been 68 years since you've competed in track and field, and America's relationship with the sport has changed so much in that time. I, I think as an example of how important track and field was when you were at your peak, you know, I think the AP did a poll in 1950, the greatest athletes, they polled like 600 sports writers to come up with a list of the greatest athletes of the first half of the century, and I think there were like nine out of the top 20, something like that, maybe seven out of the top 15 were track and field athletes. Track and field lost its hold on the American people in the second half of the 20th century. It was superseded by other sports. People today don't know who America's best 400-meter hurdler is or 400-meter runner, for that matter. Uh, how, how did you feel about you know, the way that track kind of diminished in terms of its public stature here in the U.S. over the last several decades? Well, that's a great question, uh, Jeremy. The, I was disappointed, of course. Now, but let me go back. We talked earlier about the professionalism of the Olympics. And uh, I happened to be the chair of the audit committee of the USOC from 1992 to 2000, a wonderful window on Olympism. But also at the time, I, I was a, a board member as well, public sector director. And But it was at the time that we brought in first the dream team and then others, and we changed totally the, uh, the qualifications. I, as you might expect, I'm a big believer in the amateur side of the Olympics. And of course, that's no longer. So I, I, I felt bad about uh, that. Uh, at the same time, when that happened, our athletes, track athletes, became uh, much more professional and, and all kinds of money exchanging. But that doesn't add to the crowd base. And so, yes, it did flounder. I like to think some of it has to do with our track and field association, and so on. But I think they're on the right path. Yeah. I think people are more and more paying attention. They always do in the Olympics. It's never dropped in enthusiasm in the Olympics. But oftentimes, that's the only time people get excited about who's who's winning and why. And, of course, there are so many events in the track and field. There's as many as swimming. Uh, those are the two sports that are the most events. And uh, uh, I think people find it of interest at that time. Charlie, when you were 65 years old, you went back to 
Cornell University, where you had studied as an undergraduate, and you became the athletic director. This is in 1994, I believe, when you're 65. At that point, after a career spanning four decades plus as a CEO of numerous companies, as a leader in the Olympic movement here in the U.S. and beyond, you know, you weren't doing it for the money. Why, why did you take that job? Well, it's a wonderful opportunity to return to the university for which I was a graduate. It was a wonderful opportunity to come and change the fortunes of Cornell. Frankly, their performance against other Ivy League competitors was not what I thought it should be. And I thought it was a time for a turnaround. And that's exactly what I did. In those five years, I said I would stay five years that's, if I can't turn it around in five years, I'm not going to get it done, which is what I've done in so many businesses. And it was the best job I ever had. I loved running the athletics. I'm talking about physical athletics and, and outdoor education and so on as well. Of course, we had 37, actually, I added one, 37 varsity sports. That compares to most of these colleges, the big football teams and so on, that have only 25 sports. We had 37 sports, all meeting the Title IX uh, requirement, and uh, it was a glorious experience for me. Why did I take it? Because it was going to be the best job in my life, and it was. And, and, and I did what I said I would do. I turned it around and got it moving and did so many things in terms of facilities and, and uh, treatment of our athletes and encourage them and so on. We, I even started a, the 400 Club there, the 400 Club with those who had a 4.0 average. Now, I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I never came close to a 4.0 average. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to invoke had... my Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, Charlie. You, okay. you can assume that, no, I did not. Speaking with Charlie Moore, the 1952 Olympic gold medalist in the 400-meter hurdles and silver medalist in the 400-meter relay, the U.S. team that... Broke the world record by four seconds, but nevertheless lost uh, by the smallest of margins to that remarkable team from Jamaica, that quartet from Jamaica. Charlie, you received you received a diagnosis at the beginning of this year, non-operable pancreatic cancer. And I was speaking to your son, Jim, uh, a few days ago, and he was telling me how you had declined um, treatment and... Um, you're getting hospice care now. What has this time been like for you? What are the things that preoccupy your thoughts at this moment in time? Well, uh, that's pretty easy. I, frankly, it may sound crazy, but I have no regrets. I've had such a wonderful life, uh, impactful, full life, and uh, I've been given the chance to have, in this case, six months or so knowing there was an end. There was an end to everybody's life, by the way. And I already was 91 or nearly 91. And so this was an opportunity to kind of get my affairs in order, to uh, meet with all my wonderful nine children and 16 grandchildren. That's a lot of, <laughs> lot of family. And uh, so I had a great time. I've stayed here. The pandemic, which has been a mess for everybody, including us, we're here in the mountains where it's very safe and we haven't traveled. And we go out maybe once a week to get some food. But other than that, the kids have come here. And it's been a, a beautiful experience, frankly. You know, I, obviously, I didn't want pancreatic cancer. I had plans to take all my children and grandchildren to the, 19, to the 2024 games in celebration of my father's 100th mm-hmm. anniversary in, in February before I got this diagnosis. 
Jim and my wife and I went over to uh, Paris to, to check it out. That's where the games were held in 24. That's where they're going to be held in, in 2024. And so I had lots of things to look forward to, which I'm not going to get to. But, you know, I've just done so much and uh, I have so many friends. You know, that's the asset we all try to get is member friends. I have them all over the world. and it's, I'm very comfortable with, with what's happening. Charlie, it's it's remarkable, um, uh, and, and you're facing this with such with such grace and such poise. Um, I think there's there's obviously a lesson here for anyone who's listening, and, and and you've achieved so much. We've talked about just a fraction of those achievements. When you look back at the scope of your life and all those achievements, what do you think it all means? Well, that's a great question. To answer that, I had to write two books. Uh, one, Running on Purpose, which is a business memoir, mostly, but it, it starts with the, the finals of the 400 meter hurdles and the lessons I learned from that and other athletic opportunities. And uh, uh, it builds on that. And the lessons I learned of determination and hard work, uh, but grit and that sort of thing, uh, and purpose. I have high values and high principles, which I've lived by fortunately, all my life. So my takeaway take with that, and then, by the way, the second book, uh, One Hurdle at a Time, is a, a fun book uh, aimed at uh, high schoolers or, or, or younger. Uh, and it it uh, takes the 10 hurdles, the, the 10 hurdles in a 400-meter hurdle race, or all hurdles, actually, and uh, it tells you the story. Of what, what It's a guide for, for all young people to look forward to and, and, and taking one hurdle at a time in their life. It's a life lessons. So what do I take away? Well, the book says it, and, and frankly, I had the opportunity to write those books and think about it. This is a very question. And my answer is, my biggest thing is my family. Gosh, I just had the best family, and most importantly, my wife, Judith. Mm. But uh, I can't deny that winning a gold medal has carried me through in, in many respects. I mean, people always want to know and talk to an Olympian, particularly a gold medal. So that's been good. But, you know, I've had some, some wonderful experiences in corporate philanthropy where we, I was the founding leader or director of a committee encouraging corporate philanthropy, and we finally got up to hundreds of members, and they were giving, the corporations were giving $20 billion a year. Uh, that, was, that was very exciting. Not to mention my wonderful opportunity in five years at Cornell, do what I did. So I had a very full life, and all those things have let me appreciate my family. And, and that's my biggest takeaway. It's, it's the purpose of my life, and, uh, um, and, and that purpose, which has been broad, has carried me through my life. Would you say you've lived with this kind of attitude, this, this remarkable positivity throughout your life? I, absolutely. That's, that, that is what I've got going for me, is I I, I really have had a purpose for everything uh, and, and been dogmatic about it, I suppose, <laughs> even stubborn maybe, uh, hopefully not too selfish. Uh, but that's that's been my life. And my, my family have been so supportive of that, the kids, all the kids. Charlie, I can't tell you how much it means to have this conversation with you. Um, it, it's, it's inspirational, and your life has been an inspiration to so many. Thank you for being here on The Sporting Life, Charlie. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Jerry. Always with you.
Thank you. Straight Talk Wireless. No commitment, no compromise. Charles Moore, one of America's great Olympic champions.